Good morning. God's name is great. Amen. It's a sweet time of worship. Uh, if you would pull out your Bibles, whether you have a printed Bible or a digital Bible or it's on your phone or on some device, uh, please pull that out now. Uh, the Word of God is our text and we continue to worship God when the music stops. We worship Him in the study of His Word and we seek to apply it to our lives and that obedience is also an act of worship. So worship hasn't stopped. We're just getting going, okay? Uh, let me pray for us and then... Uh, We'll dive into John chapter 11 this morning. Father, this morning I am thankful to know that wherever we are, in whatever condition our heart may be in, that when we incline ourselves to you and we draw near to you, that we find you. Your word tells us and assures us that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So whether we are out on the trail working alone or uh, in our office or at home with the kids or in the kitchen or in the yard or gathered together with your people in corporate worship, we know that you are present. So we don't invite you. We don't ask you to come. We acknowledge you are here and you are present and available and we draw near to you, Lord Jesus. We do ask now for your help as we study your word, that it would not be just an intellectual exercise or an act of the mind, but that it would be an act of the heart and the will where we incline our whole lives to you and as an act of worship and obedience say, please transform us with your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us with the truth. So help us study well now. Um, and we pray that you would be honored and that we would learn and become more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I may not look the part to you, uh, and as many of you know, um, I love basketball. I like it a lot. Uh, I like it too much if you ask my wife. Um, in fact, she would, say, and, and, and she would say that I've almost ruined her for sports now because my interest is so much greater than hers is. And uh, I imagine some of you families might have the same kind of sports junkie in your household. I am one of those, I confess. Uh, but I love basketball, and it was a game I was introduced to in second grade, and I've played it competitively through school, and then uh, up through high school, and then I reached college, and mm, that was the ceiling, no more. <laughs> um, and I remember my freshman year at, in college at Biola, uh, Biola University, I, I arrived a couple days before classes started, and so I remember a Saturday morning, classes hadn't started yet, and I was looking for something to do, so I was kind of poking around the university, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to grab my ball, I'm going to go down to the gym and see if I can, you know, catch a pickup game or something like that. And as luck would have it, I walked into uh, the gym, and there were a handful of guys playing a game, and uh, so I began shooting on the other side, looking desperate and forlorn, and hoping they would invite me to join them. And um, I did notice that they were, you know, they were good. And uh, as luck would have it, they invited me to come join their game. And so I did, and I started playing with them. And again, it, just after a few seconds, I thought, these guys are good, uh, they're tall, and they're athletic. Three things I don't have, you know? I don't have any of that. Um, but I have courage, see? Or stupidity, whichever you want to call it. So I jumped right in the game, and I remember thinking, uh, again, just after a few plays, I'm kind of holding my own, but I'm, I'm quickly coming to the realization that these guys are very skilled, and I'm doing the best I can just to stay with my guy, you know. 
I'm thinking to myself, I'm probably not going to score in this game. I might not even touch the ball, but I'm going to lock this guy down, right? He will not score. That's my goal. And so I'm giving it my best to guard this guy and uh, thinking I'm doing okay. And then all of a sudden, he kind of does this backdoor move to the basket and I turn to go with him and I get screened, if you know anything about basketball, I get screened off. I turn the other way to go around just in time to see him get absolutely airborne and catch a pass way above the rim in an alley-oop dunk ferociously. It was humiliating. And I remember kind of standing there watching him go up in the air and thinking, that's my guy. Like, <laughs> I'm supposed to be over there, up there. And uh, it sort of hit me very quickly that, uh, as Dorothy would say, I'm not in Kansas anymore. And it turns out there is a big difference. These guys happen to be Viola's basketball team, and I got to step into that. And uh, it just so happens there's a big difference between high school basketball and college ball, if any of you have ever run into that jump. And uh, I was confronted with it. This morning, the passage that we're looking at, you're all wondering, how in the world are you going to translate this over, right? The passage we're looking at this morning is about the resurrection of Lazarus. And I think the disciples... Um, had that similar moment of realization that I had that Jesus was playing on a whole other level. They believed in him. They listened to him. They were following him. They believed that he was the Messiah. But I think at this particular point, they realized that Jesus didn't just have a ground game. He had an aerial attack, right? He was on a whole other level. He had a whole other gear to his ministry and and to his calling, and he demonstrated that by showing his power over death itself. By raising the dead, Jesus raises the level of our understanding and their understanding of who he is. By raising the dead, he raises our expectations of what he will do for those who believe in him. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. This, uh, this is the finale of the seven signs. We've been talking about this. One of the literary features through the Gospel of John are these seven signs or seven miracles that point to his deity. The first one being, of course, his turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And that was done fairly quietly. And they've gotten progressively and increasingly significant and spectacular. And now we have the raising of the dead. The seventh of these signs identifying the deity of Christ for us. And it, it really is a crescendo moment in sort of the symphonic construction of the Gospel of John. We're meant to see that Jesus has power over death. So look with me in John 11 verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we haven't seen that story yet. It actually is next week, and we can see that it was such a generous act of hers that it was circulated among the churches and told about her, such that the reputation is here even prior to the writing of this gospel, if that makes sense. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is, is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. 
But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. In other words, Jesus is saying, we should get on with this. Let's hit the road. Okay. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may be believe, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Well, let us also go that we may die with him. Sort of the Eeyore of the group here. <laughs> let me show you just a bit of a map so that, uh, to try to indicate where they are and how all of this uh, comes together. As you see in front of you, there's a map. And sort of in the top left-hand corner there, you can see the temple and uh, kind of down in the lower, I don't know if you can identify the locations, but down towards the uh, lower left corner there, there's sort of a green hillside. And Bethany is right there in that area. It's a little less than two miles away. And um, so it's close. So you can understand that in the last situation, the last story that we found Jesus in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, Jesus left the temple and he went out into the countryside and he basically was fleeing for his life. Because we were told the Jews picked up stones to stone him, remember? So now when he's coming back to Bethany and he's getting this close within two miles of Jerusalem, you can understand why the disciples are apprehensive saying, but wait a minute, why are we going right back into the lion's mouth here? And that helps, helps explain Thomas's comment when he says, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, this isn't a moment of courage. I don't think he's eager for martyrdom or ready to spend his life. I think he's just sort of resigned to the fact, great, Lazarus is there dead. We're heading back into this troubled area. Oh, fine, let's go. We'll die with him. And uh, we understand this to be kind of a cynical comment from what was a, a bit of a cynical man. This is the same disciple, if you remember, Thomas, Doubting Thomas is his name, is the one who said, after the resurrection of Christ, unless I put my hands in his his wounds, and in his side, I won't believe that he is raised from the dead. And so Thomas is kind of our cynic on the scene. He is the empiricist who makes decisions based on facts and reality and not sentiment. And here he realizes they're headed towards danger. And one of the things, the first things I want to bring to our attention is this. According to his wisdom, Jesus delays. That is, he delays his response to go and to be with his family while his friend Lazarus is sick. And I believe that for his disciples, this delay must have been very confusing once they sort of considered everything. Uh, especially when they bring news to him. They say, this is Lazarus, what, whom you, you know, whom you've met, whom you've heard of. They dignify him in a special way in his relationship with the Lord. They say, this is Lazarus whom you love. This is an individual that was very dear to Jesus. And so I think the formula in their mind and often in ours is quite simply this. He's sick. You have the power to heal. And you love him. So A plus B plus C here is got to equal you will go and do it. Right? 
And, and, and that really is human math, if I can call it that. But what we find in this passage is that God math is very different than human math. We just do addition. This plus this plus this equals this. But in God's math, there are variables. We're doing addition and he's doing quadratic equations and polynomials. Those are the only two math words that I know. <laughs> All that to say they're more complex than what we do. God is considering variables that we are not even aware of. In his manifold wisdom, he brings together all of the lanes of mystery and human experience, things that we don't even know about. And he has purposes that are much above ours, as we'll see in a minute here. But I think the reality, sort of the difference between human math and God math as it relates to the working of God, brings us to the most difficult work of all in our discipleship, and that is that we have to trust God. Anybody find that easy? If you do, can I talk with you? Because I confess to you that I don't find that easy. It brings me absolutely to the end of myself, which is the point, in order to trust God. Jerry Bridges has an excellent quote about this from his book, Trusting God, and I've put it in your notes for you. And he contrasts the difference between obeying God and trusting God. He says, Obeying God is worked out within well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. We don't know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstance in which we must frequently trust God. We are always coping with the unknown. I don't know about for you, but boy, he pinpoints there for me the difficulty in my own discipleship, which is I know this, and I have to trust God for what I don't know. And I have to recognize and tell myself he's doing a whole different kind of set of math than I might be doing myself. So Jesus' intentional delay of two days no doubt catches them off guard. But one of the things that it teaches us, it says loud and clear something we need to hear is this. That the timing of the Lord is perfect. You will have to remind yourself of this again and again and again as you go through life. When his timing doesn't match your intended timing. That the timing of the Lord is perfect. There are two really dominant themes of, uh, or concepts of time as we go through the scriptures. There are others as well, but two really dominant ones that we see, and we've talked about this before, are the difference between kairos time and chronos time. Those are sort of the Greek words behind it. Chronos time is time that is measured. You have a chronograph in your watch. Uh, it's sequential time. It's seconds that go to minutes, that go to hours, that go to days. It's what we measure. It's intervals and a sequence of time. That's chronos time. Kairos time is different. Kairos time is opportunity. It's moment. It's occasion. In other words, chronos time is maybe measuring the development of a child in its mother's womb over time, over sequence. But Kairos time is the fullness of time in the moment of delivery. Uh, Kronos time is waiting and looking. When does the Lord return? It's measuring, checking, trying, hoping, wishing, wanting. It's looking at the intervals. But Kairos time is the moment of his returning. It's the fullness of time as the King James translation translates it. Uh, Kronos time says school starts in four weeks. <laughs> oh, right? But Kairos time says, I'm going four-wheeling this afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to strike while I can. I'm going to take the opportunity. This is the moment I have. 
And so frequently we, I think, as humans are very or can be disappointed in God or within outcomes because he does not work within the chronology of our desires. We have a schedule in mind and he's got a different schedule in mind. But what we understand from this passage and throughout the scriptures as a whole is that God is absolutely maintaining kairos moments that are already ordained. And we're dealing with the sequence up until. But he has those moments already well in hand. And I think sometimes in our own impatience, we can, we can sort of write the end of the story in our minds. As we find with Lazarus's family here. Later on, you'll see. They kind of believe the story is over. Lazarus is dead. And we can do the same kind of thing when we're, when we're confronted with a circumstance that doesn't meet with our time or with our expectation and we have our hopes disappointed and we can sort of write the end of the story and say, well, that's it. It's done. And we can fail to see that God has many other chapters to compose. And I think this passage kind of challenges us in how we deal with time and how we think about it. Uh, you may get frustrated in lots of different ways about time. In fact, I want to just kind of rummage around in your life a little bit if I can. It's one of the prerogatives I get as your pastor. But we can get frustrated as it relates to time while we're waiting for the salvation of a loved one. Right? We measure the moment in terms of how many years have we been praying for. Or maybe we're waiting for the house to sell. It's not happening on our schedule we measure things in terms of days on the market and the softening value and we get fearful. Or we're waiting for our careers to finally get some traction or we're waiting for our, our best plans to materialize. We're waiting for some kind of recovery that's slow in coming, whether it's physical or emotional. Or maybe we grow impatient over the slow discipleship of someone that we've been investing in o- over time and we get frustrated my wife and I had this experience here just this, this summer. There was a, a family that we love that attended this church a number of years ago, and uh, they were going through some difficult seasons in life, and we were kind of walking some things out with them, and we cared for them, and I'll be quite frank with you, they were frustrating to us. They were hard. They took us to the end of our grace that we had to give, and they, it was a taxing relationship at times. At times it was lovely, and at times it was taxing. And... Um, as a lot of folks do in Fairbanks, they moved away. And uh, they lived close by. And we had a chance to see them here recently, just this summer, after many years apart. And our frustration with them at times was sort of the slowness of their discipleship. or the, They weren't progressing as fast as we thought they ought to. And we saw them recently and we were blown away with the maturity that they have in their lives right now. And how God is using them and developing them. And it was just beautiful. We were confronted with what God is doing with us completely absent of the scene. If you know what I mean. And so we got in the car and we're driving away. And my wife said something just so beautiful. She looked at me and she said with tears in her eyes. She says, we're not dealing with finished stories. Isn't that right? We're not dealing with finished stories. Um, the people that we love, that we care for, that we're have some great hope for them. Their story is not finished and we should not finish it because we have to remember that we're all works in progress. We ourselves are as are the people that we love and care for. 
King Solomon says it well in Ecclesiastes 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Here in this passage, you might feel like, boy, you've got a long way on time, Eric. Well, I think it's what we wrestle with a lot. We're presented with the clashing of Kronos time, our time, and Kairos time, God's appointed time. And we see here that the timing of the Lord is so frequently different than our timing. And one of the reasons why, one of the critical reasons why, is because the purpose of the Lord is so frequently different than our own purpose. The purpose of the Lord is the variable that we often leave out of our formulaic frustration, right? It's the variable that God is working on. And and this passage makes it very clear that the purpose of the Lord is his own glory, That is what God is doing. He is always bringing glory to himself. He's not here just to make your life a little neater and cleaner. His primary purpose is his own glory. If I can say it this way, we have a self-serving God. And for him to serve anyone else other than his own glory would actually ultimately be idolatry. He must be for himself. And he is. And this passage actually tells us this in no uncertain terms. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, that God's son may be glorified through it. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so the variable we're introduced to here is that the purpose of the Lord is his own glory. And I I honestly think that this is one of the, the least... One of the most, how do I say this? The most least, the least, I don't know. It's the least understood theological truths about God is that he is principally for his own glory. In fact, if you talk to most people in the world today about their concept of God, even in general, you will find that people have a very small view of even what a God might be. He's one of our own choosing. He's one we might apply to our life as a consideration But people don't think about God in terms of a transcendent being. We have a world, we we live in a world with a very small view of God. But we also see in this passage, because one of the mistakes we could make is to feel like, well, then God is just this uncaring force. And that we are incidental to his existence. And that's not the case here, because while the beginning of this passage confronts us with the difficult truth that he is principally for his own glory, the second part of the story reminds us that he is compassionate. He's compassionate for us in our suffering and our disappointments and our sorrow. And so we get this beautiful glimpse of the heart of Jesus for his people, which is absolutely a, and unmistakably a heart of love. Look at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss, in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. 
do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's like the sisters have been talking, you know. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? So many beautiful things in this passage we get to focus on here. First of all, if you want to look for an example of a wonderful disciple in the scriptures, the example of Mary is top notch. She's a phenomenal model to us of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Whenever we find Mary, we find her at Jesus' feet. I challenge you to look at that. Right here, or, or at one point in her life, actually next chapter, in chapter 12, she is the one who anoints his feet. So she honors Jesus. She's also one who sat at his feet and listened. Remember when Martha was busy making all of the preparations, Mary was there in the posture of a disciple receiving instruction, looking to obey her master. And now at this point, in a time of great grief, she comes once again to the feet of Jesus and she brings her grief and her sorrow and her pain and her disappointment to him. She is a phenomenal example of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus who always comes to the feet of Christ. And then we get to see in this passage too just the loving heart of Christ. First of all, he offers some comfort with the truth that he gives. This beautiful passage, a great hope of Christians everywhere. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. I would love to have heard these words on the tongue of Jesus. Well, I mean, it would just send shivers through your spine to hear him say these things. And we have to be careful. I mean, certainly we want to offer people truth when they're in these moments of grief and crisis and sorrow. We have to be careful with that. We have to pick our moments. Jesus knows the moments better than we do. I think we might actually take a better example from him in his second gift that he offers those that are hurting, and that is that he offers his grief. Uh, If you want to be a good friend to people, grieve when they grieve. Rejoice when they rejoice. Enter into their experience. And we're told these beautiful words here that are very familiar to us, probably so familiar that we don't even think about them too much, and that is that Jesus wept. But I want to ask you a funny question. I want to mess around with you just a little bit, if I can, if you'll permit me. You're all hostages here anyway, so if you'll permit me. Why did Jesus weep? Why did he weep? I'll give you three reasons we know he didn't weep. He didn't weep because he was shocked to find out that his dear friend Lazarus was dead. The passage makes it very clear to us that he knew he was dead. He was absolutely sure he was dead. In fact, he delayed to make sure it was so. It reminds me of the novel The Christmas Carol, right? Marley was dead. He was absolutely dead. 
It's the same kind of thing here. Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead. He delayed his trip to make sure he was dead. We know also that he didn't feel bad about being late on the scene here because he knew ultimately this would result in the glory of God. He intended to be late. This reminds me of Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings, right? A wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Jesus didn't feel bad. He didn't think that he was late. He showed up at his, the moment of his choosing. And he didn't weep because Lazarus was gone, because he knew he was going to bring him back. So I ask you again, why did Jesus weep? And here it is. I believe he wept because he saw the ugliness of death as the end consequence to mankind's sin. He saw it for the ugliness that it is. Death is separation. And I think at that particular moment as he looked around and as he saw Mary and he saw Martha and he saw their grief and he saw the friends that had come up from Jerusalem and he saw all of them cut to the heart with grief because their friend Lazarus was gone. I think he saw this scene and it bothered him. In fact, the word here that says he was deeply troubled in spirit is closer to anger than it is to sad. In fact, a very good translation might be that he was outraged at what he saw. Oftentimes people will say, well-intentioned people will say, well, death is just a part of life. And I would say at best that's half true. Death is an unfortunate reality that we are confronted with. But it is no creation of God. Death is a creation of mankind. It is a consequence of mankind's sin. It is the end result of sin. It is a great horror and a toxic byproduct of sin. But it was never God's good intention for us. It was never intended as a part of the life and of our life. In fact, the scriptures called death the last enemy that Christ defeated. Amen. Twice in this passage we're given this phrase that Jesus was deeply troubled and outraged. And I want to tell you that um, uh, this really hit me this week. I got a phone call on Thursday from uh, my dad down in California, and he was calling to let me know that my 53-year-old aunt, uh, her name is Vicki, uh, that she died this week uh, to end-stage alcoholism. Uh, she is a believer, praise God. She's with the Lord and far better. Uh, this thing had control of her life as long as I knew her. She struggled and struggled with it. And her passing was no sweet thing in the moment. It was ugly and hard. And uh, her husband was there as the stroke took her life. And my grandmother uh, was there watching her daughter go. It was ugly. There was nothing pretty about it. It was no gentle transition or peaceful change. It was a corruption that God never intended for us. It is not his good plan. It is an ugly reality of a fallen world. That is why Jesus wept. Because as he looked at the scene and saw the grief and saw the end result of sin, almost with angry outrage, he wept over the reality of it. But also beautifully, generously, we see the compassionate and loving heart of Jesus He's one who enters into our experiences. 
In the incarnation, he literally did so. He took on human skin and became one of us. Sympathetically, he grieves with those who grieves. And ultimately, sacrificially, he took on not just our sort of human nature, but he took all of our sin into himself. He is the ultimate empathizer. In fact, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so graciously, Jesus here shows his compassion and his love, and he extends a great gift to those who grieve, and that is his own grief. He wept himself. So if you want to be a good friend to someone who's hurting, grieve with them. Just grieve with them. Don't take them deeper into the hole, okay? But enter into their experience with them and be with them in their grief. Be with, just be with them. Uh, Pastor Paul Holmes, my predecessor here, once did a, a sermon on the book of Job. And at the beginning of the book, you have these three friends, right? And it says for days they listened to Job lament. And Pastor Paul said a great thing once. He said if they had just stopped right there, they would have gone down as the best friends in history. <laughs> That's true. But Jesus does something better here than showing us how to be a good friend. He shows us how he is a good God. And that is this. He has power even over death. So here's the good part. Verse 38. Jesus once more, deeply moved, same word there, that, that trouble that he felt, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Two beautiful things I want you to see here. First, first of all, uh, we see that Jesus spoke to the Father. He did this so that people would know that he was sent. That was his intention. And I think this is absolutely amazing because Jesus here, whose primary purpose is the glory of the Father, performs this miracle, raises the dead in such a way that the only person who's going to receive glory and honor for it is the Father. And so if Jesus, who is very God of very God and has the power to raise the dead, also possesses the humility to honor the Father in this act, how much more should you and I do the same? And then secondly, Jesus spoke loudly to the dead for the benefit of the living. And let me talk about this. As a kid, I used to think, sort of hearing this story, that uh, Jesus had to speak loudly because he was straining with some difficult task, you know? Lazarus, come for you know, as if it was hard. And the louder he spoke, the stronger he was, or something like that. That's just kind of how I associated it. And I love the words, the corrective words of Augustine, which are an important correction. He says, had not Jesus used Lazarus' name, then all of the dead would have been raised at that moment. 
And that is what we need to see. It's a good thing he was specific. (laughs) They would have been inundated. We do not serve a God who strains ever. Not ever. We do not serve an impotent God who struggles. He never strains to have his will or his way. He is God who is all-powerful, the omnipotent one. When he wants to have his way, he simply speaks and it is so. Remember that God spoke the world, the world into existence. He just spoke it into place. I don't even think he said it loud. <laughs> he spoke to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him, as the hymn says. He calls the dead and they come forth. And so we need to understand something here, and that is this, that the battle that wages between God and evil in this world is not one of equally matched forces, okay? Uh, sometimes we think that the battle is going on and on and on, and we think that the Lord is straining with it. I mean, you look at the news this week, just this week alone, pretty demoralizing, yeah? And we can sit there and think, oh boy, I hope the Lord can, you know, pull this one out, <laughs> as if he was straining, But we understand that the battle goes on and on and on, not because he lacks any power, but because he is so great in his patience. He is so great in his love of those who are not yet repentant that he is waiting that people would come to him. And that's why the battle wages on. Not because he lacks any resource to to change it, but because he is waiting patiently. Second Peter reminds us of this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then again in Second Peter 3.15, bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. It's interesting to me that those who would sort of reject God or the idea of a God because of the evil in this world, oftentimes, you know, they say, well, if there was a God, he would change these things. And in fact, they don't understand that their own lack of repentance is unwittingly causing his delay. God is patient for people to come to him. The chapter goes on and on here, and I I simply don't have time to get to it. I, I need you to study that out on your own. But what is amazing to me is this. After this incident, after Jesus calls a dead man from the grave, the people are once again divided about him. It says many people believed, and then others said, boy, we've got to get rid of this Jesus where everyone's going to believe in him. And so they plot, for his, they plot for his death. There's so many important things that we learn from this passage. We learn that the timing of the Lord is perfect. The purpose of the Lord is his own glory. He is no distant and unfeeling God, but he is sympathetic to our pains and our suffering, and he enters into those experiences. He is compassionate with his people. He rejoices with those who rejoice. He weeps with those who who weep, but most importantly, above all the other things, we see in this passage that Jesus has power over death. Amen? The great hope for those who trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for um, this particular passage of the resurrection of Lazarus because it gives hope to all of us who trust in you. We are encouraged by the words, I am the resurrection and the life. 
he who believes in me will live even though they die. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, who has not yet repented of their sin, who is still separated from you, God, I pray that they would repent of their sin and come to know you as a good God and a Savior, one who has given everything necessary for redemption. Father, thank you for your great grace and for calling us to yourself. We live this life with hope and confidence because we know that we will be with you fully one day as you resurrect us as well. So thank you for this scene. Thank you for our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.